Welcome to Songcraft, Spotlight on Songwriters. I'm Paul Duncan. And I'm Scott B. Bomar. To make sure you don't miss an episode of Songcraft, please take a moment right now to subscribe to our show via Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also hear streaming episodes on Spotify. To receive a bi-weekly email with new episode announcements, sign up for our email list at songcraftshow.com. You can also keep up with us via Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching for one word, Songcraft Show. To find out more about how you can help support our mission while getting access to bonus content, exclusive contests, and other extras, visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash songcraftshow. You're listening to an instrumental version of Way Down a number one hit for Elvis Presley that was written by our guest on this episode of Songcraft, Lang Martin. The Grammy nominee and Nashville Songwriters Hall of Famer will join us later in the show to talk about such hits as Rub It In, I Should Do It, The Greatest Man I Never Knew, and his new memoir, Permission to Fly. Part one. Well, Scott, we're going to kick off this episode in a way that we've never kicked off an episode before. That sounds uh, frightening. What do you got in mind? <laughs> we are going to call... Uh, one of our patrons, someone who has been contributing, you know, month after month to help keep this show on the air and, and keep some of the, you know, bills paid and lights on around here. Right. In fact, this is a guy who is at our timeless standard level. That is the top tier of it Patreon sponsorship. The top tier. So uh, we're about to call Mr. Tommy Smith and check in with him and uh, just t- take a moment to, to sort of feature Tommy on our show. Nice. Yeah. So, so if people support us on Patreon, there's all kinds of uh, perks that they can get. And if you are in that top tier category, one of the perks is you get to uh, come on the show and talk about whatever you want to talk about. So, so let's uh, let's ring up Tommy and see where he's at. Let's see what he wants to talk about. Hello. Hey, is this Tommy? Yeah, this is me. Tommy, this is Paul and Scott from Songcraft. How you doing, man? Good. How are you? We're doing pretty good. Happy Memorial Day to you. Hey, you too, guys. Hey, man. Thanks so much for uh, for your support of the show. It really means a lot. Uh, no problem. I uh, I went through a little uh, good good uh, financial things lately, so I started listening to your your podcast, and I was like, well, I'll I'll get on there and give back a little bit. Well, thank you, man. That's um, awesome. I'm uh, I'm I'm happy to know for multiple reasons that that you hit a nice little stretch there financially. So um, good for you and good for us, man. Yeah, everybody wins. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I, I'm I'm curious. I wanted to ask you, what has been your favorite show that we've done? I would say uh, I really like the the Smokey Robinson one. Nice. Oh uh, yeah, one of it our was, favorites too. Yeah. I, I'm just I'm I'm so I've got kind of an old soul. Yeah. So that kind of that that was a that was pretty pretty interesting just to hear hear the the stories yeah. from you know from back then I I love that so much yeah I've got an old lower back actually so you, you and I um... <laughs> yeah I I had a week back about a week back <laughs> I like this guy uh, yeah. yeah well it's funny when, when we talked to Smokey I think he was the least old soul in the room he felt like I felt like I was talking to somebody younger than myself yeah it was with, weird with that yeah. guy. <laughs> yeah, he looked younger than us, which is there's no explanation for that. <laughs> so, 
so in a way, Tommy, we're, we're kind of taking a moment to interview you because, um, you know, because of your support of the show, we're fans of yours now, just as like we're fans of Smokey and, and everything else. <laughs> and and I, I also wanted you to, to give you an opportunity to say if you could turn the screws on any aspect of our show, <laughs> if you could take your monkey wrench out and change one thing, mostly about Scott, what would that be? <laughs> uh, I, I, I have no clue. I've, I, I wouldn't know where to uh, begin to to critique anyone on a podcast <laughs> in other words we're, we're already perfection that's, that's what i was hoping for that's what i was angling at i felt like maybe you'd say nothing so perfect <laughs> right, yeah right. so so tommy are you uh, a songwriter yourself i i like to think that i am i've got maybe a handful that i've that i've written uh, I, I used to be dead set against it uh I'm, i've been a drummer for about 20 plus years i was in a band uh you know how that goes. I'm solo, kind of yeah. solo now. Right. And uh, but Which is up tough until for a about, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, and you know, I taught myself guitar and piano along the way, and so I'm a, I, I'm, I, I still see myself as a drummer that can play other instruments. Yeah, I'm not really a, a guitarist or a pianist. I can just kind of monkey around with them. But doing doing solo gigs uh, now, I every once in a while I'll do you know piano vocals and then guitar vocals. But I used to be, about two years ago, I was just dead set against writing music because uh, I, I was just such an old soul. I'm like, man, there's so much good stuff out there that mm. people nowadays haven't even heard yeah. and don't even know exist. And I'm not going to be able to say anything that hasn't been said, and I don't even want to try. Yeah. But yeah. I, I don't know what, about, about this time two years ago, something just clicked, and I was like, you know, I, I love all the old stuff, and I've been listening to it. I don't really... No offense to anyone, but I don't really want to try to search for a bunch of new stuff to, yeah. to get into. You know, if I hear something that's new and that I like, I will I will listen, but I, I don't really want to search through all of the other stuff. So I was like, man, I, I want something new to listen to. So I was like, well, I'll, I'll just start writing stuff. <laughs> <laughs> right, so right. that's, that's kind of whether that's really worth listening to or not for other people. I was just like, well, I'll, I'll, why not? Let's give it a try. Well, it's the ultimate do-it-yourself. Right. Like if you want yeah. something good to listen to, just go out and write it. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. I uh, I try to do what I can. I February, I guess it was. We moved into a uh, new house. Sold our our other house, which is how I was financially a little more stable than than normal. Right. And um, I was able to remodel the the two car garage into my own music studio. Oh, nice. And nice. so I I do. Uh, it's crazy that every Every instrument and piece of equipment I've ever come in contact with, somehow I have saved over the years <laughs> wow. for us. And I didn't know why I was saving them, but when I moved in, I was like, you know, I don't have to really buy anything. Wow. I already have That's everything cool. that I need. <laughs> so, wow. yeah, so I'm hopefully within the next four or five years, you know, being in the middle of the country here in uh, Tecumseh, Oklahoma, I, uh, I don't know what my clientele would be like. Um, Right. But even if even if I don't, you know, even if it's not uh, my business doesn't really take off doing that, it's still it's still you know my personal studio, and it it would look and and be exactly the same even if I didn't try to turn it into a business. Yeah, hmm. yeah, yeah. I think that's kind of the mark of a of a true musical person. It's like, hey, I'm going to do this whether I make any money at it or not because you know I'm I'm. I love it, and I I just I can't not do it. You know that's that's usually yeah. the the 
foundations of of people who are successful in music because that's what you got to have is, is that love for sure. Yeah, and and that reminds me, you saying being successful. I've had so many conversations with people about how success to me, anyways, successful is is relative. It's mm. you know it, it one thing that you could have two people and the same exact outcome or same exact life situation that's going on, one could consider it success and the other one could consider failure. Yeah. And I've I've just always kind of had a, uh, uh, I don't know, just kind of a, a minimalist mindset when it comes to it. Just, you know, whatever I can, if, I'm, if I've got an instrument in my hands and if I'm able to do it and survive, whether I'm making money with it or not, you know, having to work a regular day job, it's still, it's still worth it, you yeah. know. Well, hey, Tommy, uh, we can't thank you enough, man, for being a, a supporter of the show and, and all the people who uh, support us on Patreon. It, it really allows us to keep doing this thing, and, uh, you know, it's just cool to, to connect with you and to chat with you a little bit, and uh, I'm glad you love the Smokey episode. That's one of our, our personal favorites, too. So, um, man, just uh, keep listening, and, and, you know, all the best to you on your studio, and I have a feeling you're going to be... Uh, cranking through a whole bunch of clients in that place before you know it man i hope so and i appreciate you guys taking the taking the time to to give me a shout i, I can't guarantee what the future holds but i'm gonna try to support as long as i can we love it you're supporting us just by listening too, man just that all of it means a lot to us well i appreciate it man guys keep up the good work and hopefully uh whatever corners of tecumseh oklahoma our voices reach into you know we can send some people your way too so yeah that's right hey that's cool man that's that's awesome if you guys uh you don't have to give me a plug or anything but if you guys want to check out my website it's uh sanddunesrecordings.com absolutely very cool we will check it out and uh encourage our listeners to check it out too okay man thanks a lot all right brother thank you you too bye-bye part two that was cool um (laughs) I like Tommy. Yeah, nice guy. We should have him on the show more often. Yeah. Um, well, speaking of studios, we had uh, mentioned last episode that uh, if anyone has had demos recorded at Pearl Snap Studios with our friend Justin in Nashville um, to send us some of that stuff, and uh, we're going to play some of it on future episodes. Yep. And I'm happy to announced that we heard from a couple people already and just want to put that bug back in your ear again to uh, send us some more of that stuff. And before long here, uh, we will start sharing a little of that stuff uh, with our listeners so you can get uh, a true uh, view of what kind of things um, Pearl Snap is doing. And, uh, you know, I think it'd be something that will be uh, fun and also inspiring to, to other listeners yep. who might be looking for an opportunity to get some professionally made demos done. And dude, if you ever put a bug in my ear, we are going to fight. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Signing off now to, to clean my ears out. Um, <laughs> hey, so we're about to talk to Lang Martin, who uh, um, among other things has a, a song that is going to be really familiar to our listeners, maybe not in its original incarnation, although it was a huge hit that way, mm-hmm. um, as Rub It In, Rub It In. Right. But from the Glade commercial where you hear, <laughs> plug it in, plug it in. Right. And it got me thinking about that whole kind of thing where you, you hear certain songs and sometimes you actually begin to associate the song with the commercial right. as much or more the, the original version. Mm, yeah, yeah, that's true. Certain things that we've actually grown up on. There, there was one that when we were kids, mm-hmm. I remember, and uh, and it was a commercial for, I don't know, some some sort of shampoo that actually helped color your hair. Mm-hmm. And they would say, I'm going to wash that gray right out of my hair. Do you remember right. that one? 
Uh, you're, I think you're quite a bit older than I am, but um, <laughs> yeah, I, I've heard tell of that. I'm actually my grandparents few, told me about that. I'm actually a few years younger than, or a few months younger than you, pal. <laughs> um, that, but that was uh, based on a song. I'm gonna wash that man right out of my hair, which right. I believe was Mitzi Gaynor. Oh wow, which, that's that's going deep. That's free info for that's, everybody out that's there. That's the music geek brain <laughs> kicking in right there. <laughs> um, so, uh, I mean, do you remember any of those? Yeah, you know, I mean, obviously, uh, like the California Raisins, you know, had I heard it through the grapevine, which yeah. was, um, that was just basically the song. It wasn't necessarily adapted into something else for, for the commercial. But, uh, you know, I think if I were to be honest, that's probably how I learned the song, heard it through well, the grapevine. Well, yeah, as a kid, you were like, well, oh, yeah, that's that song those Raisins sing. Right. <laughs> right. Well, the Raisins did a great version. I mean, I, in their defense, it was... It was pretty awesome. Well, you know, I think the raisins, uh, by the time they recorded that, were kind of aged. Right. Oh, God. Well, they were certainly <laughs> wrinkled. Yeah. Do you, I mean, how many people do you think they heard, like a rock, and thought oh, it yeah. was just like a song just for Ford trucks? Right, right. Turns out that's a real Bob Seger song. Right, an actual song. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I remember uh, the, the Feist uh, song, One, Two, Three, Four, yes. um, which was, uh, I became aware of that through um, an Apple commercial. And uh, there's certain songs that, that they get this whole new life. I'm sure Lang uh, would would probably be the first to attest that having, as a songwriter, having, you know, Glade turn, uh, rub it in, rub it in, into plug it in, plug it in is... is uh, kind of the lucrative opportunity that you really are looking for. Yeah, I'm sure he had no problem with that. Um, and, you know, we're going to hear Lang talk about that and about a lot of other stuff from his storied career, uh, including a, a uh, more than a brush with the greatness of Elvis Presley, which, which you know, I'm always, always excited about you, that. You're always down for that. So, yeah, I, I'm, I'm sure. way down for that. <laughs> oh, nice reference. Yeah. Um, and if you didn't get it, listen to this episode and then you'll be like, that ball is pretty witty. <laughs> Part three. A versatile songwriter who has found success as both a pop and country hitmaker, Lang Martin has penned more than 20 songs that have reached the top 20 on the Billboard charts. His breakthrough came with Rub It In, a charting single for Lang as an artist that was later revived as a number one country hit and top 20 pop hit for Billy Crash Craddock. Years later, it was altered to become Plug It In, the long-running jingle for the Glade Plug-In television commercials. A half dozen of Lang's songs have earned BMI awards, including Everybody Needs a Rainbow, made popular by Ray Stevens, I Should Do It, which was a hit for the Pointer Sisters, I Want to Go Too Far, which became a top 10 single for Trisha Yearwood, and Way Down, the last new song ever recorded by Elvis Presley. Way Down reached number one on the Billboard chart within days of Elvis's passing. Additionally, Lang wrote charting hits for Freddie Weller, Mel Street, Jerry Lee Lewis, Christy Lane, Dickie Lee, Tanya Tucker, Kathy Matea, Pam Tillis, John Anderson, and others. He wrote Reba McIntyre's first charting single and co-wrote The Greatest Man I Never Knew, which became a chart-topping hit for Reba several years later and earned Lang a Grammy nomination for Best Country Song. The list of other artists who've recorded Lang's songs includes Bo Diddley, Carl Perkins, The Drifters, Barry Manilow, Don Williams, and Billy Dean. Lang was inducted into the Nashville Songwriters Hall of Fame in 2013, but has since set music aside to focus on narrative writing. He recently published his first book, Permission to Fly, a memoir of love, crushing loss, and triumphs, available June 11th via Fieldpoint Press. One of our lucky listeners will win an autographed copy of Lang's book. 
To enter the drawing, send us an email to songcraft at songcraftshow.com. Write permission to fly in the subject line and give us your full name. We'll have a drawing on a future episode and announce the winner very soon. One final note regarding audio quality. This interview was recorded via cell phone, and you might notice a bit of interference on today's episode. Lang, welcome to Songcraft. Well, thank you so much. You've just published your first book, uh, which is called Permission to Fly, a memoir of love, crushing loss, and triumph, um, which I actually just uh, finished reading a couple days ago. Um, And it's obvious that your gift for writing is not limited to songs. You clearly are quite capable of writing a a great memoir as well. Um, And before we jump into the details of your life and, and career as a songwriter, I'd love to hear a bit about how um, your process as a narrative writer unfolded and, and get some insight into how the idea of, you know, writing a, a memoir happened for you. My wife was crippled in a car accident mm. 25 years ago. Mm. And uh, I thought about that and thought about that forever. Um, but 10 years ago, I was just trying to put it into words and, you know, how do I ever talk about this or process it for myself? It took me a couple of years, but I finally did it. And then uh, in '09, the New York Times printed this story, and uh, it's basically about Linda's and my life since her car accident. And the story drew an enormous response from all over the world, and it was incredibly exciting to me and inspired me. And I felt as though I'd made contact with families and kind of love-based people and inspired me to just keep going. So it eventually turned into this book, but it it took me every bit of 10 years going to coffee shops every morning at 7 or 7.15 and just working. And it it sort of, you know, I I loved it. So it wasn't in any way a laborious process. I was just crazy about every single day going in, trying to, you know, bring to life the people and situations who had, you know, just made my life because you know we all need we all need so much help and so much uh, you know uh, encouragement to keep going. Well, you know, every songwriter has an origin story, and it usually involves you know getting a guitar at the age of twelve and thirteen, and you start to put together a band and that kind of thing. But your story is a little bit different um, because writing songs and making music they, they weren't really a conscious part of your life until you were a young adult, which which we'll get to. But first, I kind of want to hear a little bit about where you grew up and if there were some particular musical experiences as a kid that might have sown some seeds in your mind, you know, to, to become the songwriter you, you were to be. Well, early on, I just loved, well, my, my, my mom and I, when my dad was in the Army, in the Navy, rather, in the South Pacific during the Second World War, she and I were a team alone, and she would... Uh, play Spike Jones records mostly, <laughs> and we'd sit around our living room with our tragic little dog, and uh, she would play these records, and one winter, we went to Florida, and we came back, and this kid called me and said, Lang, tune in, uh, I think it was 1040 or whatever on our dial, and, and it, it was an awakening between, um, you know, black music largely being played on white radio. Not that they were all black, but, but a lot of the early rock records, even by white people, uh, had this enormous black feeling and this uh, 
almost copying of black style. So there was this fabulous mixture. And since the records were made all over the country in radio stations and homes and garages and crud ball studios and all different kinds of mines and uh, guitars and amps and everything, the records had so many different sounds. There was virtually no sameness to it. So it was constantly exciting. And you know, we'd be driving down the road or, and hear a record, and you didn't get into, you know, are they fat? Are they beautiful? You know, are they, hmm. what, what are they, anything about? You just got into, Jesus, God almighty, I, that's the greatest thing I ever heard. <laughs> so it, it, it just totally took over my life, but I never thought about writing songs. I just uh, knew I loved, loved all these records. Yeah. Well, in 1961, you took a job as a copy boy at Time Magazine for a year when you were college-aged. Um, tell us a bit about what that job entailed, and and if looking back, you think there are any ways in which being around journalists every day shaped your understanding of how to communicate through the written word. The biggest thing I got out of it was being around really, really smart people. Hmm. These friggin' people were fantastic. Hmm. I mean, Calvin Trillin, who's become an enormously famous New Yorker writer. Uh, John Gregory Dunn, who wrote lots of movies. Um, John McPhee, whose books are just, uh, you know, classics forever. I mean, these were the people to whom I was bringing coffee, whose stories I was collecting, bringing to the editor. My job, basically, was each morning I would get all the New York papers. I think at the time there were seven. I would cut out every story that related to my particular section of the magazine, which was called The Nation, and I would cut them out with a ruler and, and give them to the editor. And I would make coffee for everybody and bring it to them. I think we had a senior editor and maybe um, maybe six other people. Uh, they were a combination of writers and what were called researchers who would just, you know, find the background to the stories. Um, so my day was made up of answering their buzzer that was on my desk when they had a story to be taken to the editor, bringing them coffee, keeping them up on any, like the afternoon papers would come out and I'd have to cut their stories too because in New York at that time there were afternoon papers also. Wow. So yeah. it, it, I was constantly in their offices and the, the thing that was so incredible was if there were a news story, the Berlin Wall or something, you know, I could just walk in this guy's office and say, God, give me back or what's the scoop on the Berlin Wall? You know, and I just felt at the center of everything. Um, I did do some writing and I showed it to the editor and stuff and he thought it was good. And, and of course, I thrived in it and loved it and ended up getting into Columbia and, and really getting so much out of that experience because yeah. it was also in New York. Well, and, and in addition to all those influences flying around, in 1963, George Hamilton IV releases a John D. Loudermilk song called Abilene. That, that was a country and pop hit, but I understand that for you, that song was a pivotal moment. Yeah, it really was, because that summer I was painting a house. I was up on a ladder, had my radio with me, a little portable, sitting in the gutter, and... Um, that song came on the radio, Abilene, Abilene, prettiest town I've ever seen. You know, I'm just up there painting. I thought, God damn, that is the greatest friggin' thing I've ever heard in my life. You know, <laughs> I wonder if I could, wonder if I could write a song. And I, for some reason, I just said, Yes, you know, you can do it. You can write a song. So I wrote this song called Swagger, which I thought was certainly at least the second greatest song <laughs> that had ever been written in history. 
and I I learned it uh, what I thought was perfectly and sang it or walking around my neighborhood, driving in my car, riding my bike and everything until I thought I could, you know, you know, indelibly state it, it if I were in front of a microphone. But I had no idea what to, to do with the song once it was written. I did read all the music magazines, so I knew where the musicians and writers and record people hung out in New York. Hmm. And knew that if I were going to go to the next step, I had to go to that place, which was a bar called the Turf Bar. Hmm. After two days going there and not having the guts to walk in, I finally hmm. opened the door. I went into the place, saw these very handsome two black guys in the darkness wearing sunglasses, and I asked them if uh, they were musicians, which uh, turned them into convulsions. <laughs> and uh, they said, <laughs> they said, yeah. And but I was this, you know, white kid, corduroy, white button-down shirt, you know, right. saddle shoes. I mean, like I couldn't have been more diametric. <laughs> and uh, they said, "What do you want?" And I said, "Well, I want to hire some musicians. You know, I have a song, but I don't play an instrument." And they said, "Well, does that song have any music?" And I said, "Well, yeah." And they said. Well, how does it have music if you don't play anything? And I said, well, I just sing it. He said, in the air? And I said, yeah. <laughs> well, they thought that was at least the funniest thing they've ever heard in their life. <laughs> and, and finally, when they quit laughing, they said, you know, you're all right, boy. You're all right. Go to this guy, and he'll set you up. And I did. I went to a studio called Associated, which was a big demo studio at the time. And um, for 80 bucks, made my first demo wow. and started, started taking it around. You know, there's so so much amazing about that story. Um, I, I love it. There's something sort of specific to the songwriter who will hear something and go, that's the most amazing thing I've ever heard, and then immediately go to, I, I bet I can do that. Um, you know? <laughs> oh, God, that's so funny. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you know, part of it is you just say, geez, if I could ever do that, like, it would be most fun in the whole universe right. you know and so so i guess that pumps up your your wish list well and then, and then i just i love the 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 fact that this this you know white kid in the corduroys who walks in probably the last person in the world they thought would have a song called swagger and, and yeah that's right you've got so much swagger that you decide you're going to pitch that song to elvis presley um, That's which right. actually yeah. kind of led to your first real publishing arrangement as a songwriter tell us how that all unfolded well I got my Elvis records out and started reading the business info up in the, usually I think the right-hand corner. And through that, it led me to a company called Hill and Range, which mm -hmm. was connected at that time with Elvis and published a, a huge number of his songs. But I got out the New York phone book and found Hill and Range. And it was on Broadway, and right near a subway station. And one day after school, I, I left my little French class or whatever, took my demo, which was a disc, and uh, went to this building, 1619 Broadway, which is the Brill Building. I didn't know that. But anyway, I go up there and, and went in, and there was a secretary, and I just told her I thought I had a song for Elvis. Could I play it for anybody? And she said, well, let me see. And she went back, came back a few minutes later, and said, yeah, if you'll wait you know, five minutes, you can go see Irwin. I had no idea who he was. And I sort of thought, God damn, this is the easiest friggin' thing I've ever done in my life. <laughs> you know? And so I go in, I play him the song. He does not wig out from my song. And, and uh, you know, I said, well, you know, it could be a girl song, you know. It could be like for the angels, you know, that just had my boyfriend's back, big hit. 
He said, yeah, maybe it could. Those guys are across the street. So I went across the street and found these guys named Feldman, Goldstein, and Goddard. And they were just about my age, slightly older, but like 1,100 times uh, more savvy. Hmm. Um, but I went up to their their uh, office door. It, I knocked. Nothing happened. So <laughs> I walked in, and they were just sitting around. And uh, I said, the minute I walked in, this one guy said, Hey, love those shoes. They were my saddle <laughs> shoes. <you know. laughs> like, like the back of them was white and the middle of them was brown or something. I mean, <laughs> and I said, yeah, well, they're yours if you want them. Then. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I said, I think I've got a song, The Angels, my life. And so they put it on and they said, well, I don't know if that song's for the angels, but, um, you know, I love your voice. So, um, you know, Bring us some more songs. You got any more songs? I said, no, that's my first song. I don't have any more songs. <laughs> they said, well, br- br- <laughs> bring us any more songs you have. <laughs> so, long story short, one day I brought them this song called Looking for Boys, which was kind of ironic because to date, no girls had been looking for me at all. <laughs> and and uh, <laughs> we all sit down together, sat down together, and they started pounding out this idea filling out the rest of my song on the piano, and they all pitched in their ideas. And we made really what was just a great, it's a great little song, and they made a fabulous record. The Angels were tied up in litigation. They couldn't record it with them, but they went back to their high school and found these three also totally adorable girls, and they named them the Pinups and recorded the song. One of the things they did that was interesting is that even though all three of them were, you know, pitching in their ideas, they gave me 50% of the song, and they split the other 50%, which I thought immediately wow. told all I needed to know about these guys. They were incredibly wonderful teachers. Yeah, yeah. Well, and this is all before you played an instrument, too, right? Like, you're, you're kind of coming yeah, up with these I melodies didn't... in your head and, and, and offering to them to help with that part of the arrangement, right? Yes, exactly, yeah. I didn't get my first guitar until after Linda and I had been married. We've been married... Um, I don't know, just a few months, I guess. But I was twenty, was it twenty-three? And um, you know, she gave me a guitar for Christmas, this fifteen-dollar guitar. I mean, that sounds insane, but it was like a hundred-dollar, hundred fifty-dollar guitar today. Right. And I just, I found that I could, you know, learn to play these few basic chords. But those few basic chords made up all the songs hmm. that I love. Yeah. You know, <laughs> Hound right. Dog, whole lot of shaking, and you know, whatever else. And so um, I just started writing songs. So you ultimately wound up writing songs for Blackwood Music, uh, where you landed your first charting record as a songwriter in 1966 with Walter Jackson's recording of A Corner in the Sun. A corner in the sun When those heavy days get me down And there ain't no sun around Well, I run to you I run to you Where the pain of the day goes away Cause you're my corner And that's a song that you wrote with Lou Stallman, who was uh, a more experienced writer at the time and had several hits under his belt. Um, talk about um, how you and Lou began working together and kind of what you learned from, from writing with him when you were uh, at Blackwood there. God, you have totally done your homework. <laughs> um, well, really, I mean, well, how gratifying is that? 
Well, Lou Stallman was uh, probably just a few years older than me, but he was kind of bald, and he he just looked like he was a lot older than me. He smoked a pipe, and <laughs> right. he was oh he he was always in uh, April Blackwood, the company, just milling around waiting for his co-writers. And um, every time I saw him, he'd say, "Hey, Lang, why don't you write with me? You got to write with me." And I, and I was just writing by myself, so I said, "Lou, I I'm just kind of a loner. I I just write by myself." And, so after a few weeks of this, he said, you know, I know you're kind of a loner. You're just out there by yourself. But I'm like, How's it, how do you like it out there? Is it, you got a lot of hits coming out? <laughs> of course, I had no hits coming out. <laughs> and, uh, the, the, you know, before I knew it, I was headed to lose $77 rent control apartment for these what I call songwriting lessons, what he huh. called co-writing. But, um, you know, he knew all the same basic simple chords that I did. But I watched how he constructed the songs, put them together, and quickly got from the verse into the chorus with a little build-up, and then how long the choruses were, how often he repeated the title, just how he put the whole song together. I'd go home after these songwriting sessions and just take these songs apart and just make notes. And it was so educational. We also got, I think we wrote maybe seven songs, and I think five or six of them got recorded. Well, obviously the the songwriting thing was beginning to happen for you at that point, but um, in 1966, you also recorded a couple of singles as an artist yourself, um, Pick All the Flowers That You Can on General International Records, um, and Love Comes and Goes, backed with Crazy Daisy for Date Records. You were obviously um, pursuing an artist career at the same time that you were writing these songs for, for other people. Did you have a... Um, a sense at that time that, that the writing was kind of a vehicle to, um, to, to becoming a singer yourself, or was singing the songs just kind of an outgrowth of, of having written them and wanting to present some of them, you know, in your own voice? That's such a great question. I loved songwriting. I never wanted to be a performer, but I loved making the records. I absolutely loved making the demos. And, uh, you know, for instance, the, the Date Records thing, Date was a sub-label of, of CBS, and that happened because uh, Crazy Daisy was some kind of a product. I can't remember. It was a perfume or something. I don't know. Anyway, through the CBS connection and April Blackwood, which they owned each other, uh, they said, you, will you write a song called Crazy Daisy and record it? So I did, and then they put it out on Date Records. That was part of the deal in hopes that it would become a massive hit and send hordes of people buying whatever that product was. Right. Uh, it, didn't, it didn't happen. But oh, I did make a bunch of records, and all of it was in hopes of getting some song that, that got somewhere. Hmm. And, um, you know, the one, I think it's only been maybe one or two times that I've ever went out and performed in a place with an audience, and I hated it. <laughs> but I did it like... Uh, because like, the label said, well, we're not going to put out another record unless you do this or something. So um, anyway, it was just never my thing. It, and yeah. it isn't my thing. I, I have done one songwriter night in the 45 years we've been in, 47 years we've been in Nashville. It's just wow. not for me. Wow. Yeah. Man. What I realized sort of subsequently is that what I love to do and most songwriters hate is pitching my songs. I mean, I just loved it. I love not waiting for somebody else to decide to pitch my song. I loved you know, finding out who's recording, figuring out you know 
who's the guy to get it to, making the appointment, taking it. It was so much fun for me to be there and play the song for the guy and see him either fall asleep, you know, or go, holy shit, I love that. Or, or sometimes they would say, you know, um, she just had a miscarriage, you know, she's not going to be singing songs like that about kids for a while. You know, you pick up information that really helps tune up your pitches. And anyway, it was incredibly gratifying to me. I, I got such a charge when I, I, you know, write a song, take it to some guy, then it would be a record and it would ever did anything. And I thought, God, Damn, you know, I'm in control of my life. I'm not <laughs> just, you know, w- w- you know, waiting for some wave to wash over me. Yeah, yeah. Anyway. Well, you know, and when we're talking about all this time at Blackwood, it seems like we're building toward the launch of your career as a successful songwriter, but, but Blackwood ultimately dropped you as a writer, and then you kind of switched gears. Tell us about what you did next at that point. Yes, well, you know, after uh, nine months, uh, they decided, you know, I had, I owed them money because my demo cost and the, cost of my 75 bucks a week they were giving me and i was too far in the red so they let me go well we were married and uh, my wife you know had a good job and i wanted to have a good job and so i decided that i would try to get a job in advertising that just seemed sort of logical for some reason because i was kind of a writer and i got a job at a really good uh, ad agency the <laughs> the thing was that the day I walked in there, they put me on bras, on major form bras, and I was like, <laughs> I was the worst, you know, I was scared shitless, you know, pounding out these ads, and I would bring them into this adorable woman who I had this huge crush on, she would just crap all over my, my writing, and, and, uh, <laughs> and uh, so after a couple of weeks, they had this meeting, this one woman who had apparently gotten a little bombed at lunch said well listen the kid is on bras if if you had your first day at work and they put you on jocks i mean you wouldn't do so well either so why don't we put this kid on cookies so they put me on cookies and i was quite at home doing that (laughs) (laughs) and i started looking at these products and they were all good products and everything but i thought jesus you know this is horrible i'm wasting my life and we don't need any of these products we're fine without any of this stuff you know (laughs) <laughs> so I did something really stupid. You could buy these fast food franchises for like three cents um, at the time. They were all over the place. And I landed on this one brilliantly called Cheeky's Fish Tacos. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> the Cheeky's Fish Tacos brochures kind of led me to believe in my imagination that they would kind of run themselves. And since I could get in the, to them for like a dollar fifty, <laughs> I bought one. I bought one because a job that ran itself was exactly what I needed because I wanted to be home all day writing songs. My, right. Well, what happened naturally was a lesson, a lesson primarily being to stay away from things you don't care about and don't know anything about. <laughs> we totally lost our ass. I lost my house. We had a really good little two-family duplex house in Connecticut. And uh, at that point, you know, I had to decide, am I going to, you know, go to Nashville and write songs, which was my dream, or uh, go back into advertising? Fortunately, in the last couple of months, or probably the last 10 months of the fish tacos thing, I had gotten up one morning and just went to LaGuardia Airport and came to Nashville to to find Ray Stevens. Finding Ray Stevens had been the idea of a friend of mine. 
uh, who was a music publisher. And when he said it, it just lit up in my brain. And I thought, that's the guy I need. He can write fast songs, slow songs, serious songs, gospel, rock, anything. And I wanted that eclectic kind of ear to be able to play the songs for. So I, I went to LaGuardia, flew to Nashville, took a taxi to raise office with my guitar. But I walked in the door, and I, I said, well, you know, I'm, I'm Lang Martin. I wonder if there's any chance I could see Ray and play him a couple of songs. <laughs> right in the next in the next room was this big, happy, gruff guy, and he said, hey, uh, yeah, where are you from? And I said, Connecticut. And he said, Connecticut? God, my brother lives there. He's crazy. He takes a train into New York every day. He said, well, what do you want? And I said, well, I'd like to play Ray's a few songs. And he said, I'll go back and see him and see what happens. So he went down the hall, this tiny little house, and I could hear his voice booming from the other end. And he, he just went down there and he said, Hey, Ramon, there's this kid out there. I got a feeling about him. I think you ought to listen to a couple of his songs. Well, long story short, Ray did listen to a couple of my songs, and he really liked one and said, I, I love that song. If you write me a song I like as much as that, I'll record you. I went home and wrote songs like a fiend for nine months and sent them to him and, and he would you know, we'd talk and he'd say, Well that's close, you know, it's really oh that's really a good B side or not sure about that one everything but I, like every few days I was firing him these cassettes. Yeah. But one day one day in the backyard of our house and uh, people were lying there in the sun and somebody put suntan lotion on their husband or something and the husband said Hey, rub it in, would you? And I had my guitar there, and I just said, rub it in, rub it in. Linda popped her head up and said, has that already been a hit? And I said, I don't think so. She said, well, that sounds like a hit to me. <laughs> so I, I, I continued on writing the song, filled it out, you know, a little story, live beside me on the sand, put some lotion in your hand, blah, blah, like that. And at the end of the night, we were having hamburgers. And somebody said, well, is the song finished? And I said, no, it needs a middle, needs a bridge to it. But they said, like what? And I he said, well, like, put a little on my nose, put a little on my toes, put it on my back, my sacroiliac, dab on my chinny-chin-chin. Chin, you know, and I said, that, that is great. <laughs> and, I sent it, <laughs> and I sent it to Ray the next day, and, and a couple of days later I was at my my marvelous little restaurant with our mini rush, which was like six people. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and he, Ray called, and he said, Lang, this is a smash You've got to get down here. We'll record it. But when it was released, it was released late one summer. And it, by the time it had proven itself, which it did, it was a huge hit in Houston and a bunch of big cities. But by the time it was ready to spread elsewhere, it was uh, not summer anymore, and no one wanted to play a song about the beach when it was sort of feeling like fall. Hmm. So I started using I started using that as a demo, my record. And that's how I got the record that was eventually hit by Billy Crash Craddock. I played them my demo. Lie beside me on the sand Put some lotion in your hand Come on and make me feel nice Then kiss me once or twice Say you love me again Then rub it in, rub it in That was a real, 
you know moment for you because obviously between your own record of of Rub It In and Billy Crash Craddock's record, which was a number one country hit and a, and a top twenty pop hit too, between that time you obviously uprooted you. Um, moved to Nashville, you kind of made the the full commitment that this is you know, this is what I'm going to do. Y- you relocate there, and you talk in your book. Um, you know, in in the mid '70s, you you had a number of singles that hit the kind of the lower end of the charts by you know people like Ray Stevens and and Freddie Weller and Mel Street and and Jerry Lee Lewis who cut um, Don't Boogie Woogie. But you describe in your book this period when you had you were still relatively new in Nashville and that you were writing songs just like a madman um primarily so that Ray Stevens could critique them um tell us a bit about what you what you mean by that and and why that was an important uh part of your development as a writer I thought you know if I could find one person whose criticism I would buy into all the time, and not think, oh, God, you know, that's not the kind of song he likes. Right. Uh, of course he doesn't like that song, you know, everything. Well, Ray Stevens certainly was that person. So whenever I finished a song, it was so exciting to go in there and play it for him and hear what he said. Because if he said, Lang, you lost me in that third line, or, uh, yeah, that song, that title's not enough of a story, enough of an idea to write a song about or the chorus is too short or whatever instead of coming out of there and saying well what the hell does he know he doesn't know his ass from third base you know <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I came out of there and said well god damn I better fix that line you know or hmm. make the chorus longer or if I've lost Ray Stevens he's definitely the smartest guy I know then I would lose everybody <laughs> so yeah. his, his critique just propelled me so I think there was definitely a period I wrote 43 songs in three months. Wow, and that's, geez. That, that was I mean, I was just obsessed. As we move further into the 70s, I mean, we, we see your story continue to expand. I mean, you, you have success with Reba McIntyre's first charting single, I Don't Want to Be a One-Night Stand, and then Ronnie Sessions' top 20 hit, Wiggle Wiggle. But, you know, if, if this is a movie, we've got a climactic scene coming up when you've got a number one country hit and top 20 pop hit for Elvis Presley, kind of coming full circle from where your dreams were before. And I'm, you know, kind of the resident Elvis fan on this show. So I was pretty excited about, you know, talking about this song with uh, J.D. Sumner's incredible low note at the end. And uh, I'd love to hear you talk about Way Down a little bit. Ray had this broom closet. And one day I asked if it could be my office. It was four by four feet. (laughs) And he said, you want to in that tiny little, you know, I said, yeah, that looks like Inspiring. friggin' heaven to me. <laughs> yeah, it, it was. So he built me a little shelf for the little tape recorder that we had, and I went in there and was writing songs, and I would just go in there every day and pound out these friggin' songs. So one day, it was kind of rainy, crud ball day, and I wrote Way Down. And I took it into Ray and played it for him. He said, I really like that. He said, I'm going to call the band. We'll make a demo of it. So we went in there, and Ray sang the bass part, Huh. And I sang, the, I sang the lead part, and we made this great demo. And I thought, well, this is just a smash. I mean, everybody's going to do handstands for this song, you know. Well, I took it to everybody. Crash Craddock, Ronnie Millsap, every freaking buddy. I just couldn't believe No one even held it overnight. One day, I'm sitting in an office waiting to pitch my songs, and next to me is a very famous music publisher named Bob Beckham. 
Mm. And I used to see Bob at different uh, record companies' offices and walking to lunch and blah, 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 and we got to be friends. He'd sometimes ask me to his office if they were having a birthday party or something. Anyway, he, he sits down and he says, Hey, Lang, do you have anything for Elvis? And I, I had sent Elvis at least 25 songs in the mail to the address that everybody had, but I never heard anything back. Mm. And I said, Yes, I, I do have something for Elvis. And he said, Bring it to me at 3 o'clock. I'll give it to Felton Jarvis. Well, Felton Jarvis is a very, very, very famous producer of Elvis and impossible to connect with. No one had any idea how to, except Bob Beckham had Felton as a friend, and he stopped by his Beckham's office every couple of weeks and picked up songs by Bob's fantastic stable of songwriters. And so I, you had to have a disc cut. So I went to this place and had a disc cut. They were pretty expensive. I was on my way out the door with the three songs I was deciding between which two I was going to put, one on each side of the disc. As I was going out the door, Shirley, Ray Stevens, longtime secretary, was there, and I said, Shirley, I'm going to only pick two songs of these to pitch to Elvis. What do you think? She said, well, I'd, I'd play them way down. That was the song I had decided to not put on the disc. <laughs> but I altered my plans and... Um, put it on the disc, and I, I took it to Beckham's office and kind of forgot about it. And a week or so later, a rake comes bursting into my little cubicle and says, hey, Lang, Felton just called. He he loves Way Down. He thinks Elvis is going to go crazy for it. And I go, oh, my God, it's the, definitely the greatest day of my life. Hmm. Get in my little tragic Volkswagen with no headliner, <laughs> 11 colors of primer, <laughs> and drive it home and tell, tell my wife, Linda, what happened. And, you know, but... You know, weeks pass, I hear nothing, gradually all my excitement starts to fade away. Then on the street, I hear again, Elvis is looking for songs. So, get another disc cut, take it back over to Beckham's office. At that time, this little song, Wiggle Wiggle, was starting to get going. And I had the recording artist, Ronnie Sessions, over at Decca Records in a back room. We were calling radio stations, trying to get them to play our record. And the intercom rang for me and said Bob Beckham's office is on the phone for you and Carolyn Bob's secretary said Lang hey I think Elvis has already recorded this song and I said well that's impossible I, I would know she said I'll call you back calls him back a couple of seconds says yeah he recorded that you know October 30th uh, you know in the, jung- in the jungle room and I said yeah. oh Jesus Christ you know. <laughs> get back in my little <laughs> tragic Volkswagen and race home to tell Linda, you know, guy has recorded my friggin' song. So at, right after that, uh, well, Brent Mayer and Felton Jarvis were over one day mixing way down, and Felton called up and said, come on over and listen to the mix if you want. Well, you know mixings when they put all the tracks together and everything, put the reverb and blah, blah. So I went over and listened to them, you know, making a song, and, you know, I'm sitting there in the dark with this famous producer and Brent Mayer, incredibly famous engineer, and it's kind of, you know, no light. I'm leaning back in the couch, and, and I'm thinking, oh, my God, this is the friggin' guy that I idolized as a kid. He's singing my damn song. It's like 20 years later. How in the world did this happen? Well, I can feel it.
Well, in June, they put Way Down out as a single, and it was, you know, racing up the charts and all. In August, we were in Rhode Island, and I was playing tennis. We were on vacation. The phone rang at the pro shop, tennis courts. Girl comes out and says, Lang, you have a phone call from Nashville. On the phone, this friend who is a promotion guy says, Hey, Lang, I got news for you. Your, re- your Elvis record is number one in Billboard next week. Uh-huh. <laughs> oh, my God. This is just beyond description. So I leave the tennis court, go home and tell Linda. And we both, you know, shiver into oblivion. And a couple of days later, I'm back at the tennis court. Another phone call. Same situation. I go in and answer the phone. It's my attorney from Nashville, a woman named Rose Palermo. She said, Lang, are you near a TV? And I said, no. And she said, well, Elvis is dead. Mm. And uh, it turned out that Way Down was literally the na- the last new song that Elvis ever recorded. Wow. So, yeah, it's just totally mind-boggling. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, it's it's incredible to think, you know, uh, for, for any songwriter, you know, throughout that era, you would think, that to have Elvis become a part of your story would would be the most incredible thing to have happen. And and now you find that you actually are a part of Elvis's story. A part of it, but I would say like a mini footnote. I mean, you know, when I look at his career and all the amazing songs, amazing records, so I've always felt like just the most mini nugget in his life. Mm. Right. The, this was the, the, the late 70s uh, when pretty much everybody was was using uh tape so you, you mentioned you had to get discs cut to pitch these songs to elvis why why did why did they have to to be cut onto disc that's really a good question but apparently he had a real cheap record player in the studio and he would play the disc on this record player and if he didn't like it he'd kind of frisbee it across the <laughs> studio you know and i thought I'm thinking, oh, Jesus, I hope he doesn't frisbee my friggin' song. <laughs> I am 0% surprised <laughs> by the picture of Elvis flinging <laughs> records across the studio. Exactly. I had no problem with the same visual. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> um, yeah. Duck Marty. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. Um, well, uh-huh. In the wake yeah. of the of the Elvis thing, there was more country success with uh, Christy Lane's top ten recording of "I'm Gonna Love You Anyway," and then two top fifteen hits with Billy Crash Craddock's cut of "Hubba Hubba" and Reba McIntyre's recording of "I Don't Think Love Ought to Be That Way." Um, so you obviously were having this uh, real wave of, of country success in the late seventies, but you had started out as a, as a pop guy, um, you know, in the sixties before moving to Nashville. And then as we move into the 1980s, we kind of see that coming full circle. There's a shift back toward pop music, uh, with the Pointer Sisters hit recording of Should I Do It? I love 
pitching my songs, but some nights I would just lie there and I think, God damn, I wonder if I could, you know, have a song by the Pointer Sisters or some of these other people. But I was particularly obsessed with them. I don't really know why. They just had so much life in their vocals, so much mm. excitement. They seemed like such happy, total energy kind of people. I, so I would lie down on the floor and I'd put these two detachable speakers next to my ears and play, you know, he's so shy and all these things. God damn, I'd give my right arm a thing. So I knew all those chords, too. They were basically simple chords. And one day I went into our uh, little scruffy basement room that we had, and I, I wrote, Should I Do It? And I said, I love this song. This song is fantastic. It happened. It was the first song I wrote in my new uh, publishing agreement with Chapel Music. It was the first song I wrote after leaving Ray Stevens, which was definitely, I think, the hardest day of my life to date. Yeah. I, I went out of my parking lot of Ray's office and cried in my car after I handed my keys to him. But I knew that I wouldn't have a chance to get any of these other records if I didn't, you know, go with a, a publisher that had these offices and had mm. access to these people that I had no access to. I'd yeah. been sending them songs, calling them, and getting nowhere. So anyway, there was this incredible Irwin, the guy who I'd first played Swagger for, was the head of Chapel Music, and in the meantime, since I'd seen him, played in my song, he had become literally the most famous pop music publisher in the country. Yeah. And I was crazy about him, and he was kind of crazy about me. We just clicked. We were a team. I sent him Should I Do It, and he said, Lang, that is the best song I've heard in years. I'm going to get you a fantastic record on that. And then he did. When I heard that Pointer Sisters record, and, and when it became a success, I just thought, if I wrote a song that really had it, that Irwin, because of his access, would get a great record on it. So I mean, I was just a songwriting machine. I would write songs during dinner, and you know, with a, we had these three kids, and you know, I would, whatever the chaos, it didn't matter. I would just write songs. I had grown up in a family of five kids, so I had no problem doing whatever I had to do in like well, all kinds of noise. Right. Anyway, I just kept writing these songs, and every morning I would call Irwin, and we'd talk about who was recording and which of my songs might apply to whatever. We talked every morning, and this one morning I called him up. The secretary said, you know, he's not in, didn't come in that afternoon, didn't come in the next day, didn't come in the third day. And finally on the third day I said, that's impossible. He's never not been in, ever. What's going on? And she burst into tears and said that he had jumped off the 17th floor balcony of his apartment building. Mm -hmm. So, of course, I burst into tears and just was lost for years after that, honestly. Yeah. I had to find my way. It took me a long time to, to get my ass back in gear. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, once you had moved to Nashville, you were a primarily a solo writer, uh, you know, but that's kind of unusual in a town that's kind of built around the co-writing model. And you, But you write in your book about going through a period of kind of your songwriting passion diminishing. And I don't know if some of these life experiences through through relationships and hard times kind of, you know, contributed to that. Um, but I, I know that um, kind of moving into co-writing uh, in the early 90s um, was a little bit of, of an antidote to that for you, um, you know, beginning with, with working with Richard Lee. I'd, I'd love to know about kind of that period of your life um, and, and how it changed you as a writer. After this long fallow period I was just lying in my bed one night just talking to Linda and I said you know I have so much energy and so much 
um, you know, feelings swirling around inside me. But every time I hit my guitar, it just puts me to sleep. Every time I sing a note, it just sounds like I've heard that note three quillion friggin' times before. I was just tired of myself. So I said, I've just got to call some other people and get some other ideas and some other, you know, thoughts in the room, some other approaches. The first sort of big day, so to speak, of the, my co-writing life, um, Richard Lee and I met, and he had just bought a house. The house had no furniture in it except for a card table and a couple of chairs, and it had this fireplace that you light, and <laughs> you know, a gas fireplace. Mm. It was cold, it was winter, so we went into this room, and uh, we each had our guitars and sitting on these chairs, and I said, well, you got any great ideas? You want to, you know, write? And he, he laughed. He thought that was the funniest thing he'd ever heard. He said, well, I, I've got... I've got this idea that I kind of like, what do you think? The greatest man I never knew. I knew that Richard's dad had died when he was two years old, that he never knew him. So I, I knew that's where that came from. But I said, you know, the greatest man I never knew to live right down the hall from me. And Richard yeah. said, oh, God, man, that's <laughs> it. We're rolling, you know. <laughs> so we worked on this song for five days. And, I mean, sometimes we were got laughing so hard we just thought we'd choke to death. And then other times we would say things that were so sad and painful that we just thought we had to stop for the day and regroup, you know. But after five days, we, we got this song, and I found the original lyrics not long ago, and there were so many directions that were totally wrong that we mm. did not go off in. And we, we ended up with this little gem of a song. We pitched it. I pitched the song quite a few times, but... Um, a lot of really, really, really smart people said, I love that song. I think it's going to be huge, but it's just too sad for me to record. One gigantic star said, uh, uh, I think that's going to be a smash, but people would think that was my relationship with my dad, which mm. it wasn't, and I don't want anybody to think that, so I, I can't record it. Anyway, net, 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 we keep going along. My, a friend of mine, Lewis Anderson, took it and played it for Tony Brown, who was producing Reba. Reba said, I love this song, and she recorded it, and it became number one country song. The greatest man I never knew lived just down the hall, and every day we said hello, but never touched at all. To co-writing, you were also still coming up with songs by yourself, um, like I Was Blown Away, which uh, Pam Tillis released in 1995. And actually between 1994 and 1995, Pam released a total of six singles, and all of them went to the top five, except for your song, I Was Blown Away, which stopped at number 16. Um, so what happened there? Oh, God. I couldn't even talk about this for three or four years. I really couldn't. I had demoed that song 
I was blown away. During the time my wife Linda was in the hospital recovering from her car accident mm-hmm. in uh, 1993. And um, I came home at one point during her hospital stay. I, I moved to Pennsylvania where her hospital was for 11 weeks, actually. And I came home and tried to figure out how we were going to outfit our house for a wheelchair and put an elevator in and all this kind of stuff. And while I wasn't doing that, I, I made a demo of I Was Blown Away. And Pam just wigged out for the song. They recorded it, and they put it out. It followed two number one records. And it was teed up to be another number one or top five and whatever was racing up the charts when the Murrah building in Oklahoma City blew up. Mm-hmm. And that that morning I was on the phone with a friend, and you know he said, hey, this building just blew up in Oklahoma, you know. Tuned in the TV and 168 people, including children and stuff, were killed. It was just a hor- horrific thing. Yeah. And as I watched the news feed all day, the people kept saying 168 people were blown away, blown away, yes. blown away yeah. today. You know. And that night we were at dinner with some friends, and for some reason the conversation got to you know art imitating life, life imitating art, and suddenly in horrific clarity i saw that my record was over we got home i punched the message machine on our answering machine Pam Tillis's manager mike robertson was on there and said lang i have something very rough to tell you because of what happened today in oklahoma city radio stations are being besieged with calls of how can you play a song called i was blown away when 168 people were actually blown away today yeah. we're taking the record we're taking the record off the air after no. out of respect for all those who died and so on so i mean i totally understood and yet it seemed it was sort of like the wind blowing back a home run off of yeah. lake erie or something mm-hmm. yeah but you know with all the, the uh, empathy that i had for what happened that made me cry yeah. i mean it did yeah well, fortunately, there were there were more big hits to come, um, and another big hit for you in the mid '90s was Trisha Yearwood's recording of "I Want to Go Too Far," um, a top ten single that you wrote with Kent Robbins. What can you tell us about that one? For some reason, I, as a kid, was just eaten up with all the possibilities and excitement of being alive, and I just kind of wanted to—I don't know—I just tried to grab every one of them that was within reach. And one day, my wife and I were on our way to Europe with one of our boys, and the plane was taking off from JFK, and I just, this title popped into my head, I want to go too far. And when we got home, I called Ken Robinson and said, I got this title I think could be something. And we sat down together, and I said, I want to go too far. And he said, well, like, what do you mean I want to go too far? And he, he said, that sounds like sex or something. And I said, no, it's just in life, I just want to do everything, I want to go too far, I want to go too fast, I want to, you know, and, you know, he said, whoa, yeah, okay, I, I see what you're talking about, well, we, we wrote this song, and Kent made the demo, he was a terrific singer, and um, we played it for Trisha, I didn't play it for him, but Kent's publisher, David Conrad, or one of their people, played it for her, and she loved it, and she said, um, that's me, you know, I, I'm the response. I'm the, I'm tired of being the responsible one. I want to just let it out, and blow it out. And that's kind of what this song was about. So, you know, it kind of matched up with where she was in her life at that time. And she made a, a wonderful record of it. Now I've had enough of play. 
Well, in 2013, you were inducted into the Nashville Songwriters Hall of Fame. Um, but you write in your book that the honor came along at a time when you said the fire to write songs had, had cooled. Um, and in fact, I want to read something that you wrote on the subject because I think it's a really fantastic uh, insight from a successful songwriting veteran. But you said, um, there is no such thing as a gentleman songwriter, someone who earns a good living year in and year out writing hits songs in his or her spare time. At least I've never met or heard of that person. Instead, the need to write songs eats you up, chases you most hours of the day, impolitely whispering thoughts and ideas in your ear when you're involved in other things. It's love. It's involuntary, and you can't stop it. Um, can you elaborate on that a little bit and, and, and what you were going through in that time? Yeah, I, I wasn't waking up with a song in my heart every day, as I had for so many years. Um, I was waking up with lots of feelings, but they were mostly, you know, love feelings for for our kids and for Linda and for my friends and for hamburgers and stuff like that. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I really, I wasn't really thinking that much about songs, but what at that point, I had already had the story in the New York Times, and I... I was really, you know, stirred by what had happened, and I'd begun writing little vignettes of important things that had happened in my life and important people, you know, Ray Stevens and, and Linda. And, and um, I hadn't in any way woven them into a book or uh, saw how they might become a book. Hmm. But that was how I was spending my mornings, you know, not in quite an obsessive way like with the songwriting thing more of an enjoyment thing i mean i just i would get up and go to these as i mentioned earlier coffee shops and uh just sit down on my computer and write these stories i mean i had quillions and jillions of stories that i didn't put in the book because they were ancillary to the the main point the driving point of this this freedom and somehow living out a life where i didn't feel under the thumb of the universe hmm. um and uh i thought well you know Gradually, that became my purpose, and I, I, I felt more comfortable as that happened, not writing songs, and, and instead of saying, God damn, why aren't, why aren't you writing songs? I really didn't say that much. I just said, I don't want to write songs anymore. Hmm. Um, maybe, maybe this is the new thing, you know. I, I feel this so much, and I'd always done my best when I really went with my feelings and, and not tried to second-guess them. Um, there was a line that stood out to me the most in your book. And I don't know if this was intentional on your part to, to have this mean more than what it means on the surface, but it, it leapt off the page to me. Um, you were writing about your garden in, uh, in Watch Hill, Rhode Island, where you guys spend your summers. And you said, I just keep planting stuff until something lives. And it, it struck me when I read that line that your approach to gardening sounds a lot like your approach to writing that um you're a guy who who tries a lot of different things and puts in the time and and you know particularly with songs you know there's probably a ton of great songs in your catalog that that the world has never heard and and to be a a songwriter um to be a successful writer that's kind of what it's all about is planting a whole lot of stuff and seeing what takes on a life of its own. Um, and, and just as a person who is obviously wired to be a writer, whether that is songs or, or articles or, or, or books or whatever it is, um, 
just in terms of, of reflecting on, on the writing process and, and, and being an encouragement to people who kind of aspire uh, to be writers, you know, whether that be songwriters or, or whatever, um, I, I think there's a lot of wisdom to be gleaned from a person like yourself who, who illustrates that it, it, it's not always glamour and, and not always everything that you write is necessarily going to become a hit song. Um, but it really is about, uh, about the work that goes into it and the passion that goes into it. Um, and then, yeah, a few things are going to spring up that people might notice, but there's so much more to it than that. Yeah, exactly. Right. I, I did feel exactly that way when I was, you know, making that garden. I, I do feel that, um, you know, I kind of think of it in terms of like, if instead of getting three swings at bat, I got 300 swings, definitely my chances of getting hit would go up. And I tried to take 300 swings per hour. And I feel that really definitely did make all the difference. It's sort of tempting at times to say, God damn, you know, nothing will beat that song. If they don't like that song, then I quit. You know, and say, <laughs> oh, shit. You know, they, they may never even listen to the middle part of that song. Let me turn it off. So you just have to have so, 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 so many irons in the fire. At least that was my experience. Yeah. And I've just kept doing it. I still keep doing it, you know. Mm. Um, uh, so, yeah, you're right. You're very subtle to pick that up. And I honestly didn't pick it up until later, but I later did. And I thought, yeah, that is kind of a metaphor or whatever mm. for what seems to pay off and being alive. Yeah, yeah. Well... Once again, the book is Permission to Fly. Uh, I think it's it's more about life than it is about songwriting, but I think that anyone who listens to this show would find great inspiration uh, in your story and, and in some of the wisdom that you share that applies uh, very much to life and songwriting. So, uh, Lang, we want to thank you for uh, spending some time with us today. It's, it's really been great. Uh, thank you, Scott. Thank you, Paul. It's been an enormous honor for you to want to talk to me for... 75 minutes. I would think 10 would do it, but I really appreciate it. Take care of yourself. Absolutely. Thank you, Lang. Okay. Thanks for listening. We'd love to stay connected with you, so please take a moment now to subscribe to Songcraft in your podcast app of choice and sign up for our email list at songcraftshow.com. As a reminder, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching for Songcraft Show, all one word. And don't forget to check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash songcraftshow to find out how you can help support us. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash songcraftshow. Thanks, as always, for listening and for your support.